You're listening to Louisiana Insider, a superlative guide to a great state's destinations. Hosted by Errol Laborde, executive editor of Louisiana Life Magazine. It's not Louisiana song. It's my favorite melody. It's not Louisiana song. Hearing it echo through the cypress trees. Today, all the way from Freeport, Louisiana, is Winston Hall. Winston is a musician himself, an accomplished musician, plays around town. He's also a historian uh, with, with an emphasis on music. Uh, I met him a few years ago at the uh, Shreveport Municipal Auditorium, where he gave us a, a tour about the Louisiana Hayride. Just has a tremendous background. So, Winston, thank you for joining us. Uh, I want to start off by talking about, I guess, with like the definitive musical character from Shreveport, and that would be the guy collectively known as Leadbelly. His real name was what, Hubert, Hubert Leadbetter? Hudie, Hudie, H-U-D-D-I-E, yeah, and, and uh, but quickly become, became known as Leadbelly. Okay, and, and he was he was from Mooringsport, which is right outside of, of Shreveport, so technically from Shreveport. He spent a good bit of time performing in Shreveport. Yes. Okay, and he would be like an early pioneer. Would it be would it be fair to say he was an early pioneer in the in rhythm and blues, or uh, or at least the blues part of it? You know, Lead Belly was he was known as the king of the twelve string because he preferred playing a twelve string guitar, and he his music influenced folk and blues. Um, my good friend Robert Trudeau is is a true Lead Belly expert, and uh, he's told me a lot about Lead Belly and. Leadbelly was kind of all over the map with his song writing and song selection. Um, and he was so prominent in early American music history that he influenced every genre with his with his music. Now, we have, uh, we have a snippet we're going to play from um, the Midnight Special, which was one of his recordings. I don't think he wrote it. I, I don't think it's, that anyone knows per se where it wrote. But it seemed like from when I was reading, there seemed to be like, like a prison sort of song. That prisoner yes. thing, and the midnight special would refer to, I guess, a train that would pass by, and and prisoners would see the train passing by, and the the line mm-hmm. of shedding a several light on me, like two prisoners. They think about that. I guess, I guess the the, the train is a, a sign of freedom, and then and then shining the light. And it became a yes. quite song. A lot of people would record it over the years. There's even the the program called the Midnight Special. And, but anyway, we just want to play a little bit of it so people get familiar. So this is Lead Belly's version of Midnight Special. Yonder come a miserable day. I knew her, do you know? Well, I know about April and the dress she wore. I'm a river on the shoulder. She's a paper in her hand. The governor, he trying to lose a man, let the midnight special shine his light on me. Let the midnight special shine a light on me. When you get up in the morning, when that big bell rings. So actually, by that time, he must have had some kind of swagger, because he, in that recording, he actually has a chorus behind him. 
I mean, yeah, I, I was singing along to that. <laughs> it was great. Yeah. I've heard that song a million times. It, it's just so catchy. I love it. Yeah. But the, the, uh, you know, the thing about Lead Belly, which I find really interesting, was some of his recordings that he teamed up with uh, Alan Lomax was he was taking songs that were folk songs that had been around forever, but he was sometimes the first to record them. And so there's a lot of uh, muddy areas about who actually wrote some of these songs, but Leadbelly is credited at least with bringing a lot of them to light because he was the first to record them. Now, Alan, um, Max, he was he was from, he went around like especially to rural areas and found uh, a lot of uh, uh, musicians who wouldn't have otherwise gotten attention and recorded them, and, and like he did with Leadbelly, he worked with him, and he actually put yes. on the map. Yes, he did, and from what I understand, he would literally drive around with this recorder like in his trunk and just pop the trunk open and, and record people. So I, I wish I could have seen that. It would have been really, really fun to watch. Now, he did have a, uh, a prison record, uh, which, which a lot of these people did. I mean, who were doing your early, uh, the early songs. Uh, and maybe that kind of influenced things a little bit too. Maybe there's just so much passion that goes on while you're sitting in prison. But, but again, as we say, this song seems to be referring to the idea of just getting out of prison one day. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting about the, the prison theme and, and, and famous singers, you know. Um, of course, Lead Belly has this, like, really colorful past and uh, supposedly had a temper and he spent time in prison. And when you look at that through the spectrum of history, it always makes them more interesting, right? But in real life, at the time, you would have been like, wait a minute now, this guy, you know, he's a, he's a felon, <laughs> you know? Um, but we see that with like uh, Merle Haggard turning 21 in prison. You know, there's a, a strange glorification that goes on with that when it's in the past. Um, but Leadbelly, by all accounts, yeah, was a notorious character and, and uh, was in, in trouble often. And he sang his way out of trouble. And of course, Johnny Cash would full some prison blues. Now, Cash, it seems like, I, th I think, like spends a day in prison, but he made a whole thing yes. that, okay? But, 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 but yes. He certainly connected um, with that genre. Yes, absolutely. You know, you know the, the the Cajun, the so-called Cajun national anthem, uh, Jolie Blanc, mm -hmm. by, a game, by a, game named, a guy named Harry Schultz, who was from Rain, Louisiana, and wound up going to Texas. And he wound up in jail. I think he died in jail um, somewhere in Texas. So you see this kind of like this, this passion between these guys uh, but between the music and the lives they live. Yeah, and, you know, with Lead Belly, he tells uh, some of his recordings, he tells stories and he prefaces the songs with stories. And uh, there was a, a, a real a realness to his stories. He, he tells these really funny stories about Shreveport um, on some of his recordings where him and his dad would come into town to, in the wagon to sell, sell their goods. And um, I know this story is on YouTube if people want to look for it. But basically, his dad would tell him to stay in the wagon and sleep overnight while dad would go down to the red light district. Mm -hmm. And then when Leadbelly got old enough to go into town by himself with the wagon, his dad said, whatever you do, don't go to the red light district. And of course, Leadbelly went straight <laughs> to the red light district. Um, but those are where a lot of the influence for his songs came from. So there's you know, red light districts and there's prisons and, um, of course, blues and railroads and all this perfect combination to create the artist that was Lead Belly. 
did he ever get embraced by Shreveport or was race always a hindrance? But did, was there a part where, where Shreveport said, you know, this guy is, is one of our own and just honored him or? You know, I, to some extent, yes. In a literary sense, there's a lot of people that have written about him. Um, but Ledbelly also left Shreveport. He, he went off and, you know, saw the world and I know he performed all over the place. And so, uh, but when he was buried, he was buried uh, at Shiloh Baptist Church in Caddo Parish, right near the Texas line. So I don't know in his lifetime if it was, they were embraced or if he was embraced, but I think current times, you know, he's got a statue in downtown Shreveport and especially among musicians, um, regional musicians that live in Shreveport, but really interestingly, traveling musicians that come through Shreveport, uh, you know, Jack White and the White Stripes, that, that they recognize on stage Lead Belly. Um, so there is a really a universal acknowledgement of Lead Belly and his influence and prowess on not just American music, but the world, international influence. And what I would like to see personally is Shreveport has this, this really uh, neat thing in their connection to Lead Belly. It's, it's really an important um, contribution to American culture. And I really would like to see uh, us talking more about it on a local level. And develop some sort of a, a museum or something to him? Or, um... Yeah. Well, you know, look, here's the thing. When you... When you read who was influenced by Lead Belly, I mean, let, let's think about this for a second. Johnny Cash sang Lead Belly songs. Creedence Clearwater Revival sang Lead Belly songs. Eric Clapton sang Lead Belly songs. Nirvana and Kurt Cobain sang Lead Belly songs. You'd be hard pressed to find an artist that influenced that incredible wide range on the spectrum of artists. And, and he, came of age in Shreveport. So we really owe it to ourselves to honor him. You know, I know in the past they've had a Lead Belly Festival that didn't quite hang on for some reason. Maybe the timing wasn't right, but really now where we're at, I think it's time to tip our hats to Lead Belly and say, hey man, you know, we, we recognize your, your uh, legacy here in Shreveport. Well, when we can all gather the festival together again, we should do that at some point. Well, it's gonna be a beautiful day. I can't uh, wait. You know, when you say about he was from Shreveport, but he, he moved away and never came back, what popped in my mind was Louis Armstrong in New Orleans, you know, who's, and, and who was also incarcerated, in this case, as a young man. And then yes. uh, after being accepted, he really just never came back to New Orleans. I mean, he came back for a brief stay, but never really moved back to New Orleans. After that, yes. he really, uh, spent his life in, the, in New York. So, um, Well, there are other... Um, historians that are much better versed than I am in the intricate details of Lead Belly's life. Um, but I do know that he was, you know, he, he was a well-known musician. And so he was traveling always. And um, I, I want to say he performed at Carnegie Hall. Don't quote me on that. But, um, you know, he, he really had a wide influence. So I don't know that his being away from Shreveport was an intention, intentional thing. Like I'm leaving and not coming back. But I think he got swept up in success and fame and, but in the end, like I said, he was buried here, so he came home in a sense. In the end, sure. and which I don't, I don't know where Louis Armstrong is buried, but I don't think he's buried in New Orleans. I, th I think he's buried in New York. Yeah, yeah. New York. So and it, it, it's interesting how the poster child for all things New Orleans and jazz 
ends up buried in the t other side of the country. Yeah. And, um, even though, uh, you know, every Mardi Gras we see scenes of the of the time that Louis Armstrong was Zulu, that was, a, that was a great moment in Mardi Gras history. So I think he did have some good feelings about New Orleans as, as time passed, but, but his life had really moved to, um, to New York. Let's talk about the uh, Louisiana Hayride. That there was yes. a time, I guess what, in the 40s and 50s around the country, you were seeing radio stations develop country music shows. I mean, the, the most famous, of course, was the Grand Ole Opry out of Nashville. But in Shreveport, was the KWKH that the radio station developed a yes. Saturday night country music show called the Louisiana Hayride. Um, and from that came many stars. We're going to talk about a, a couple of them. But what, what are some of your your impressions of the impact of the Hayride? Well, this is one of my favorite things to talk about. And when I when I talk about Shreveport's music history, you know, we're way up here in northwest Louisiana. And it often gets jokingly referred to as, as a different state, you know. But a couple of things that I point at to me that are just so incredibly important in the story of Northwest Louisiana is, of course, the Louisiana Hayride. And, you know, I, I didn't grow up in Louisiana. I hate to say that out loud on a, on a podcast in Louisiana. It's okay. But well, I grew up I, <laughs> I grew up in Texas. Um, but what's interesting is when you dig into the Hayride is the influence it first had regionally. You know, when it first started out, it was always people from Texas and Arkansas and Louisiana coming to the show. And when you dig into the history of the Hayride, you discover that it it wasn't anything special when it started. And I think somebody like me who grew up in a different era, in a different state, you always hear about the Hayride and you assume that it was just like this huge smash thing right off the bat and it was unique and special. But you learned that Saturday night radio programs were very common with radio stations at that time. And a lot of them flopped and some were, you know, okay. And, but many of them you never heard of, right? All these years later. But the Louisiana Hayride is still remembered. And of course, it's to, in my, the way I see it is, was the, the revolution in American music that it helped begin is, is, you know, and this is my take. Like I said, I'm not a world renowned expert on it, but just living in Shreveport, giving tours in municipal auditorium, hearing people's stories, you get a sense of the, of the way the Hayride changed American music. And that's why we still talk about it. And two names we're going to talk about them both is uh, Elvis Presley, of course, and Hank Williams. We yes. have a, um, a clip from, um, um, Elvis Presley, I believe it might have been his first performance. Yes. Uh, he's 19 years old and I want to play pretty much the whole thing because I want to point out something that actually I learned from you. And yes. Tell me I'm correct about this. That you hear every so often you hear a really loud crowd reaction. And part of the reason, is this correct, that the technicians knew that there'd be a lot of teenagers in there, there'd be a lot of excitement, and so they put microphones around the auditorium so they could pick up all that reaction. Yes. Well, my uh, my friend Johnny Wessler, if he happens to be listening to this, he is to me one of the foremost experts on the Hayride, and I always defer to him. And he actually knew the name of the guy that was the sound engineer that night. And I'm of course drawing a blank on it now that now that I'm trying to remember it. But it's interesting because again, you have to put yourself in the context of the times. 
And we, nowadays, we go to rock concerts and everybody screams their heads off. And when Elvis first showed up at the Louisiana Hayride, they didn't even really have the term rock and roll yet. And screaming your head off in the middle of the song was not something that was done. And so as this young kid from Memphis starts to play and the girls are screaming, you know, I never, I can't personally ask the sound engineer, I'd love to know what his, his uh, inspiration was to crank those microphones up. They, they hung over the audience, okay, out in the middle because it was a radio program and, and the Hayride always at its roots was a radio program. And so they were trying to paint a picture for the audience that couldn't see but could hear. Um, you know, there's stories about uh, goading the audience into making noise. And, and right before they start the show, they would ask, who's from Texas? And the whole room would erupt in cheering. And so the radio, people listening on the radio, they just hear this raucous cheering in the, in the hayride. Um, and they, they, they think, man, what's going on? That sounds really exciting. So, you know, I'm guessing that as the engineer heard these girls screaming, he saw probably almost a marketing opportunity, you know, to crank those microphones up so that you know something different and special is going on here at the Municipal Auditorium in Shreveport. Um, that's my take on it, whatever that's worth. But it's funny, I listened to this clip a thousand times and it never ceases to amaze me, the reaction to Elvis Presley. It's really phenomenal. Well, if you don't mind listening to it for your thousand first time, I think, yes. it's, I think it's important. So this would be his first performance at the Hayride, is that correct? It was the evening of October 16th, 1954. Yeah, uh, off the top of my head, and yeah, it was his his first. Now you'll hear in the recording, um, they mention we've been hearing your song for weeks and weeks. And my understanding was that Sun Records had sent copies of the songs to the radio stations ahead of time, and so people had been listening to his song on the radio, and this was his first time making a personal appearance in Shreveport. Okay, so here we go, a big moment in the uh, in music history. Just a few weeks ago, a young man from Memphis, Tennessee, recorded a song on the Sun label. And in just a matter of a few weeks, that record has skyrocketed right up the charts. It's really doing good all over the country. He's only 19 years old. He has a new distinctive style, Elvis Presley. Let's give him a nice hand. We've been singing his songs around here for weeks and weeks and weeks. Elvis, how are you this evening? It's fine. How are you, sir? You all geared up with your band there to, to let us hear your songs? Uh, well, I'd like to say how happy we are to be down here. It's a real honor for us to be, get a chance to appear on the Louisiana Hayride. We're going to do a song for you. You got anything else to say, sir? No, I'm ready. We're going to do a song for you. We've got on Sun Record. It goes something like this. Well, that's all right, Mama. That's all right with you. That's all right, Mama, just a handy way to do it. That's all right. It's all right. That's all right, Mama, anyway, do. Well, now my mama, she done told me. Papa done told me too. Son, that guy you were fooling with, she ain't no good for you. But that's all right. It's all right. That's all right. Anyway, do 
was talking about his unique style. I mean, nobody's seen anything. Like, first of all, he's not wearing a cowboy hat or boots. All right. No. And his and his hips are swiveling, and so it's something like nobody had seen before. Yes. There's a line at the end yeah. of the recording where um, they say the announcer says they've been looking for something new in the folk music field, and I think <laughs> you found it. <laughs> and so when I do the tours, like when you came with me. Um, I really have a quick to point out that Elvis was on stage in Shreveport before they even had a word to describe what he was doing. <laughs> um, and he did. Yes. He talk about out of place there. There's a very famous photo of that night, but it's a black and white photo. And so Elvis looks like he's wearing kind of a white or gray coat, but the legend I was told, and I, you know, I can't verify it, but I've heard from more than one source that it was a pink jacket. Um, including people that claim to have been there that night. Oh, yeah, he was wearing a pink jacket. So I think about um, what it would take for Elvis to walk into what is a hillbilly radio show. It is country <laughs> music and wearing a pink jacket and, and black, you know, slick black hair. Um, and I, actually, what's really neat about Shreveport and Bossier City's music history is it's still a living history. You run into people that now they're going to be maybe 80, 85 years old that were either there that night or in subsequent nights. And these people have very vivid memories of seeing Elvis for the first time, not just seeing him, but seeing him before America really knew him as what he became. And you get these wild, wildly varying opinions about him. Somebody will say, oh, I adored him. And then somebody will say, I thought he was weird. And then one lady said, my parents hated him. <laughs> and, but it was very evident from the moment he started singing that this was new and it was different. And um, so when we take people on tours of the municipal, you take them right there on the stage. You, I say to people, do you understand the rock and roll revolution in, in, in American music history in part started right here in this very spot? Um, you know, Elvis didn't, he wasn't doing something completely new. He had borrowed or quote unquote stolen a lot of his style from the rhythm and blues he was hearing in Memphis, but he brought it in a new way to a new audience. And, um, and it started right there on that municipal stage. And so that's why, you know, I tell people this is a sacred spot when I bring them out there. I really, and I really believe that as far as uh, the legacy in American music history. It was also a spot where what a couple of years earlier, Hank Williams had stood. So I want to get to Hank Williams. Yes. But first, a final thing about Elvis. Let me see if I kind of, tease you into this there was another time i guess it was a year or so later that elvis came back to shreveport by this time he drew huge crowds and they knew they couldn't have it in the auditorium because it was too small so they had it in another building in shreveport yes and after he performed that night is remembered for a famous saying that the announcer said 
that became part of rock and roll history. Do you know what I'm talking yes. about? Would oh, yes. You, would you mind telling that story then? Sure. Well, what I love about, you know, Elvis's time in Shreveport is, and this is why I, I, I really preach on this to our city leaders and tourism people. We, we up in Shreveport lay claim to a very specific part of Elvis, Elvis's life where he was performing but not famous. And that's a very small window. And you see the evolution of that from that recording you just heard where there were no drums, there was, you know, a handful of screaming girls and nobody knew who he was. Um, he could still, this is true, at that early on in his career, he could still go to the popcorn stand and get popcorn. He would wait in line to buy popcorn. Um, and then he, 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 he performs on the Hayride for about a year and a half into 1955 and on. And then he leaves because he becomes so insanely famous. And this is the Elvis that everybody knows, the Ed Sullivan Elvis, you know, and then he just blows up. And this is a, a small time frame. Well, in the midst of that, he had signed another contract to play on the Hayride. And his first contract, he only made $18 a performance, which was union scale. So that's the lowest you can get paid. And by the time he signed his second contract, he was worth a little more. So his pay got bumped up to $200 a night. Um, but really quickly, him and Colonel Tom Parker figured out he could make a lot more money other places if uh, if he wasn't tied down to the hayride every Saturday night. Because back in 1956, there was a geographic limitation. You could only go so far before you had to come back for Saturday. And so... They made a business decision and said, you know, the best thing we can do is is buy out this contract, the Hayride. So they did for ten thousand dollars. And um and so one last tip of the hat to the Hayride, Elvis comes back for this one more Hayride performance. And this was December fifteenth, nineteen fifty-six. So you can see on the on the calendar, it's you know, it's like two years later after his first performance. And he uh he by that time is just in the height of his just peak stardom. He took America by storm. And the Hayride people said, There's probably no way we can have this here at the municipal um logistically. So they move it to the Hirsch Coliseum, it's called that now. At the time, it was the youth building at the Louisiana State Fairgrounds. And there's a lot of great stories that come out of this one night where Elvis came back. He um he he was going to get mobbed by fans. And the, of course, long before the hayride started, there was this mob of girls outside the, uh, the, the Coliseum. So they decided to sneak Elvis in the back door, but they wanted to, this is, this really happened. They wanted to have a um, distraction, you know, a little smoke and mirrors. So they found this Shreveport police officer that looked kind of like Elvis and they dressed him up to look like Elvis and marched him right in the front door. And, um, and of course, the girls mobbed the lookalike while Elvis snuck in the back door. And so and th my, my claim, and I can't even begin to prove this, is that that was the first ever Elvis impersonator. <laughs> so that happened that night. Um, and then Elvis went on to perform, and he was doing basically an arena rock concert before there was even such a concept. You know, the, if you ask people that were there that night, the, the the sound equipment wasn't even beginning to be big enough to handle 
the screaming crowds. So, you know, people in the back, all they heard was screaming. They couldn't even hear Elvis singing. And when you listen to this recording, and I don't know if you're going to play it. Do you have any of this recording? No, we don't know. Okay. Well, people, it's, it's, I think it's floating around out there on YouTube somewhere. But if you listen to the first recording of Elvis versus the one of that night at the, at the youth building, it's comical, the difference. I mean, that night Elvis had drums and he was just really being, uh, the, he, had, he evolved into this full form of himself and just brought the house down. And, and to me, it's kind of this moment in American history where you, you have this great confluence of things. The country hillbilly music of the past, the rock and roll of the future, and they collide head on on the stage. Um, and you hear the screaming and Elvis finishes his last song and is whisked off the stage. And uh, the announcer, Horace Logan, gets up there. And, of course, the girls, when Elvis gets done, they go pouring out the back door to go try to find Elvis. And, uh, and so, the, so the audience for the hayride is just screaming. They're just running out the doors. And Horace Logan walks up to the microphone and, and is pleading and begging for them not to leave. And then he's, he says to them, you know, please, Elvis has left the building. And that was his way of saying, don't bother. He's already gone. He's gone out the door, out the back with the policeman, and he's no longer in the building. And that one little phrase is just kind of mentioned off the cuff, somehow wormed its way to the American lexicon. Still to this day, you can, sure. I was watching a, the movie Independence Day with Will Smith the other day. And when he, when he shot down the alien, he goes, Elvis has left the building. <laughs> and I thought, man, that's just funny how those phrases work their way into American lexicon. It's really cool. Had he indeed left the building by that point? Yes, they, they took him straight out the back. And Horace Logan tells a really funny story. He had a nice new car, I think it was a Cadillac, that he parked behind the building before the Hayride show because he thought it would be safe there. And when he came out after the show, the roof of his car was all smashed in and the windows were broken. And he couldn't figure out why. And he looked up and there was a little tiny window up on the wall about 10 feet above his car. And this mob of girls trying to find Elvis had jumped up on his car to try to look in that window and it smashed his car to pieces. Wow. So Elvis, yeah, Elvis left the building quite literally. And then, um, and then that was the end of his hayride saga. And he did return to Shreveport later, I believe to do another concert many years later. But uh, as far as the hayride, that was kind of the end of the, the dramatic conclusion of his, his time. And what, what I always mention when I'm talking about Elvis, you know, he and I, I'm not trying to be critical of the town where I live, but we could do so much more to honor his time. Um, there's a, a very famous photo of Elvis getting a haircut when he joined the military. It's a very famous photo. And that happened up in Fort Chaffee, Arkansas. And to this day, that little barbershop where he got his haircut is a museum. One haircut. One time, and it's a museum open all day, every day, or you know, at least five days a week. And people line up out the door, down the street, and around the block to see that spot. And Shreve uh, and Elvis was in Shreveport almost every Saturday night for a year and a half, and you would never know it. And so that's one of my goals as an advocate for the music history: is hey, you know, we we got to tap into the economic machine that is Elvis Presley and get those Elvis fans down here to see where he was and when he was a young man. Well, I tell you, I think it's a great idea, okay? Let me warn you, though. I think it's going to be your responsibility that ultimately you're going to have to be the guy 
to at least, if not take the lead, to rally the folks. I know you're trying to do that. Oh, we're working on it. Yeah, we're working on it. You know, a big part of it, it um, you know, not to get into the nitty gritty of, of the of it, but I think education is a big part. You know, there's for some reason that it, it has skipped a generation, the education about what happened in Shreveport. And so one of my main goals has been education. Um, and it, 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 you know, it's starting to come. These things take time. You got to plant seeds. Um, but when we, you know, we do tours of the municipal, we love having school groups um, because it, it's really amazing. Elvis Presley is one of those names that every creed, every economic level, every country on earth, they all know Elvis. And so there's this kind of universal nature to hit his legacy. And uh, it's really easy to talk about it. So I, I do lead the charge, but there's, I, I do want to say this. There's many, many other people that I have connected with over the last 10 years as I've worked on this that are also all truly passionate about it. And, you know, it's kind of one of those things that takes a long time to, to turn a ship. Sure. And so we're, we're slowly turning it um, as we, you know, kind of see that, you know, the economic potential, but also just this is a battle again to the Louisiana theme. Um, Shreveport and Bossier City have the very unfortunate destiny of being in the same state with New Orleans, which is just one of the coolest cities on earth. And so there's this kind of innate, almost subconscious comparison that always goes on between the North and the South. And um, so I always say to Shreveport, Shreveporters, Shreveportians, whatever we call ourselves, I always say, you know, you got to look at what makes Shreveport, Bossier City, and Northwest Louisiana. What makes it unique? And so I always immediately point to the music history. And I say, hey, look at our music history. Nobody else has Lead Belly. Nobody else has Hank and Elvis and the Hayride. These are ours. And that alone is a big enough reason to, to, to stand on that hill and you know, preach it out loud. Well, let's briefly talk about Hank because we're the major sure. figure in American music, too. How, how many times did he perform at the Hayride? He, you know, I don't know an exact number. I know he uh, he was there initially early, early on. He was one of the very first performers, uh, 1948. He came along just not long after the Hayride launched. And he he has a, this is kind of a redemptive story. You know, Hank, Hank was a troubled person. He had health problems. He had the, his most notorious drinking problems. And those health problems crossed over with the drinking problems. And so his story of coming to Shreveport is kind of redemptive because he comes here the first time and he, he, people, he just has this magnanimous charisma that people love. And you can hear it in the recordings. They just love this guy. And he would get up there and kind of long and lanky and sing his songs. And he really skyrocketed to fame while on the hayride. And these were the things that set the hayride apart, you know, there were a lot of other radio shows, but how many launched the careers of Hank and Elvis and Johnny Horton and Slim Whitman, all these others. Um, so Hank recorded Love Sick Blues and, and just skyrocketed to fame. And then he goes off to the Grand Ole Opry. Um, and, th and then what always blows my mind is that he died when he was 29 years old. Uh, you know, you think Hank, you think, oh, he lived this long, long, uh, successful life. He was the really young man I mean, 29 years old but it changed the world in that brief time and so he got kicked off the hayride 
and he comes back to Shreveport for another hayride contract. Um, and had just started that contract when he uh, when he passed away. So the legacy in Hank is equally uh, it, Hank's legacy is equally as strong as Elvis in Shreveport, Bossier. Hank lived in uh, Bossier City, bought a house. Um, he lived in Shreveport for a while, and Hank, unlike Elvis, Hank made Shreveport his home, um, and really considered it his home for a while. And you know, uh, my wife and I went to the Hank Williams Museum in Montgomery, Alabama, and I was had a little piece of paper and a pen, and I was just keeping a tally mark of every time I saw the words Shreveport or Bossier City, and I stopped counting. I got up to like 39 times, you know, eventually towards the end of our visit, and I said, doesn't that say a lot about Shreveport's role in the Hank Williams legacy? When you see Shreveport or Bossier City mentioned 39 times in the Hank Williams Museum, and uh, I mean, to me, that really said a lot. So I would like to see his legacy enshrined in the museum. There's some movement in that regard. Um, I don't want to say it publicly yet, but there's some discussions going on about these kinds of things. And I think we'll see. I've always said it's like Field of Dreams. You know, if you build it, uh, they will come. And we're right there on I-20. And so I just have this feeling that when the day comes where we enshrine the legacy of all these uh great performers with Shreveport roots that people will just pull right off the road and come see. And that in part contributes to the, the civic identity of Shreveport, which is to me equally important. You, you know, Hank Williams song, Jambalaya, which I don't think mm -hmm. he, re he recorded it, certainly reflects it's a, it's a tribute to the state of Louisiana. Uh, I don't know if that was before or after he started living and performing there, but obviously he had some kind of a, an affection for the state. Yeah, well, when he came back to the Hayride, and I'm trying to remember my years here, This, I think this was 52, like the fall of 1952, I think. I think he died New Year's Day, 1953. But he performed Jambalaya, um, and and I, I want to say he maybe he did write it, um, but I know he performed it, and uh, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was an ode to Louisiana. And he was an Alabama boy, you know, born and raised. So I'm sure it's hard for an Alabama guy to, to acknowledge his love of Louisiana. But he really did. Um, I mean, he wouldn't write about it if it wasn't meaningful to him. And let me tell you one of my favorite Hank Williams stories, if you got time. He um, recorded the song, I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry. And there's a line in there about the, um, the midnight train, yeah. winding low. And I did some research and found where Hank lived in Shreveport. He rented a little apartment at 4802 Mansfield Road in Shreveport, which is like two miles from my house. And I live just off of Mansfield Road. And I, I figured out where he lived in the months before he recorded the song, I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry. And it was right there on Mansfield Road. So being two miles from my house, I said, man, I'll go check it out. So I drive down there and it's, of course, now you would never know. It's just this little apartment off the side of the road. And, but right across the street, you could, you, could, you could throw a rock and hit it, were railroad tracks. And they've been there since who knows how long. And um, I looked at those railroad tracks and I kind of put two and two together in my head. I could never prove this unless I asked Hank himself. But I, I said, man, he lived in this little apartment for like six months before he recorded I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry. And right across the street is a railroad track. 
I hear the midnight train whining low. I'm so lonesome I could cry. And at that time, I don't know if he was living alone or where his wife was, but it wasn't a big stretch of the imagination to, to think, man, this might have been the train track that inspired that line. So I said, hey, that's neat. And I go home. And I, as I said, I live off of Mansfield Road, and I was lying in bed that night, and it was real late at night, and I wasn't couldn't fall asleep. And all of a sudden, I hear this, the train rumble by, which I've heard every night since I lived there. And he blew his whistle. And I got goosebumps all the way down my body because I said, man, that's the midnight train whining low. You know, I, I just got goosebumps because I was kind of just for a brief moment in that same space as Hank was, you know, laying in his bed, listening to that train. I thought, man, see, that's that's how I connect with Shreveport's music history. You know, you can read about it all you want. You can listen to people talk about it. But you get down to the real visceral level of these musicians that had lives and emotions and feelings. And this is where they lived and performed. And, man, I really connect with it. And that's what always kind of stokes the embers of my passion for it is, is as a musician myself who sings some of these people's songs, it's like I can I can step briefly into that moment of what they were in and kind of feel it. And, man, that just brings it to life for me so strongly. And that's why ultimately my goal is to, to be able to share these stories with people that visit Shreveport, whether it's a museum or some sort of experiential thing. I want them to be able to similarly step into that and, and, and connect. Because let me just tell you something. If you, if you come into a city like Shreveport and we share these stories with you and explain to you how our city influenced these great artists, you are guaranteed to leave our city with a different emotion and feeling than when you got there. And so that's, that's always my goal. And that's why I never stopped talking about it, because I think um, it can really change the destiny. I mean, if you want to change the destiny of a city, um, you know, you have, to, you have to honor the past to go anywhere in the future. So that's why I'm always so consistent and passionate about telling people these stories. Well, I tell you, you have no idea how touched I am by that story because I love that song. That's my favorite Hank Williams song. <laughs> well, and, and, and yeah, yeah. That line in the line about the, the whippoorwill, the lonesome sound of the, mm -hmm. uh, okay. Yeah. But when you told that about the, the midnight train, you know, you know I thought about, Lead Belly in his Midnight Special. Okay. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Johnny White yeah. on day. So, so that Midnight Train. I mean, it runs through the heart of a lot of people. So, uh, yeah. It's really well, good. Well, I guess the, the train really in American history becomes a metaphorical thing. You know, a train is much more than just a train truck checking down a track. It it represents a lot. Uh, with Lead Belly, it was the freedom. Um, you know, with Hank, it was the depression. Um, so trains have a very powerful presence, for sure. That's why there's so many songs about trains. But again, that's in the very beginning of this conversation, we talked about the, 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 the nature of artists. And almost universally, the successful ones on some level are troubled. Lead Belly was a prisoner. Hank had depression. You know, Elvis was doing drugs. I mean, all of these artists come with demons, lots of demons. And yet, in spite of the demons, or maybe because of the demons, they create this music that I think really, really connects with people. And, um, 
you know, Hank was troubled. He was sad and depressed and he, he wrote about it. And, um, I, 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 you know, I sing that song and, and I listen to those words. I'm so lonesome. I could cry. And I was like, you know, have I ever been so lonesome that I just started crying? It's a very powerful notion. And, um, so, you know, that's why, and again, with the exploring of the music history, those are the moments I connect with when you really realize that these were human beings. And when you bum around Shreveport and Bossier City, you really, really connect with that. Oh, Hank lived here. You know, Elvis ate here. Lead Belly played here. You know, these are, these are very physical things you can connect with to connect you with the artist and their story. And, that, and, then, and then the best part is when you go back and listen to their songs, it's like you're hearing a whole new song for the first time. And look at the titles of some of his like biggest hits, uh, Cheating Heart, Cold, Cold Heart. You know? Yeah. Uh, you, you see that? Okay. We have a segment here that, that um, we actually have a budget where we have a segment. Okay. Our executive, All right. It's called This and That, where our executive producer Kelly asks questions. All right. Okay. Just like, would you prefer this or that kind of thing? And this is okay. the answer. And, and let's just see what happens. So, Kelly, take it away. All right. Before we continue, I Google searched it, and apparently Hank Williams and Moon Mulliken wrote Jambalaya. So, um, yes, okay. Google. <laughs> but wasn't Moon, Moon Mulliken? Yes, I, I know. I've heard of him. Wasn't Moon Mulliken sort of like a real, the real song songwriter? Or, now I won't believe Hank wrote it, but uh, you know, we'll give it to Hank for just this time. <laughs> All right. So this or that, we have um, one. And final one that has to go with what we've been talking about, but a, a few um, fun ones before that. So this or that, Saints or the Dallas Cowboys? Oh, Lord, you start with a tough one. Is it, do I have to give one answer or can I give you an explanation? I grew up watching the Cowboys, but my wife is from New Orleans. Oh, no. So, so happy wife, happy life. I really have become a Saints fan because they're such passionate fans and they have a song. <laughs> they have a team song. So I still keep an eye on the Cowboys, but I, I'm rooting for the Saints. In, in, in the bad days of the Saints, and there were many of them, we used mm -hmm. to hear that the people in Shreveport, uh, that they even watched the Cowboys games on TV, like, like the TV stations in Shreveport, oh, yeah. Cowboys games, and not the Saints. I think There's a lot of Cowboys fans in Shreveport, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Go figure. Change when the Saints won a Super Bowl. That does a little bit more, more love. Yeah, but people in Shreveport. Well, you know, talk about geography. Dallas is the closest major city to Shreveport. It's three hours away. So, you know, a little the geography is a little tricky. I'm yeah. going to say Saints. I'll go with Saints on that. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think I'll go with Saints, too, after much thought. I think yeah. that's a good choice. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Would you rather spend time around the Red River or the Mississippi River? That's easy. Red River all day. I have a canoe and I go up and down the Red River all day long. Now, the Red River, it goes, it divides um, uh, Shreveport and, and Bossier City. It, it goes down. It, it goes down. At, uh, what other towns are like Alexandria? Yeah, Alexandria. And then it catches up with the Mississippi and the Atchafalaya uh, down, down south Louisiana. Yeah. But it's a beautiful river. It's a beautiful sight. Okay. Well, you know, it's just, it's just one of those old, good old muddy rivers. It just keeps on rolling. And um, uh, it's just kind of one of those permanent, wonderful things that's always there. Exactly. I've seen a lot of good music. I know that. 
<laughs> okay. Do you say crayfish or crawfish? Well, I got to go with crawfish, but I remember you me saying earlier, I grew up in Texas <laughs> and I grew up in central Texas and there was a little creek I went to that would have one little crawfish in it every now and then. And so you talk about a culture shock <laughs> was when I moved to Louisiana, but I will, I'm going to go with crawfish. That's mine. Always crawfish. I would never. Yeah. <laughs> All right. This one might be a little bit tough, but you can only pick one. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. And Hank Williams, Lead Belly, or Elvis Presley? Oh, man. Mm, you mean to listen to? Just to listen to? Yep. I'm going to have to go with Lead Belly, I think. That's a tough one. Interesting. Yeah. I got to go with Hank. Hank just moves me in, in so many different ways. Especially, we, we haven't even talked about the songs where he yodels, when he kind of starts that going on. And I oh, just, yeah. Um, you know, it's just incredible. I, that, I'm going to say Lead Belly, but, you know, between you, me, and the wall, the reality is I would listen to all three of them if I could. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And then now we have a little extra. This and that is going to happen every episode, but this is a little bit of Shreveport trivia to see if you know the answer. Oh, um, you put me on the spot. Okay, <laughs> this ought to be good. Shreve, Shreveport once had a team in the Canadian Football League. Do you know <laughs> what it was? Oh, I do not. I do not. I guarantee you if there's any Shreveport native born and raised listening, they're probably going to get mad at me. But I do not have a clue. <laughs> Errol, do you know? Yeah. There was a time when some guy became head of the Canadian Football League, and they figured out, you know, we make a lot more money if we expand into America. So over about four or five years, they expanded until all Mercy had weird things like a Canadian football league team in Shreveport of all places. And it was called the Pirates. It's called the Shreveport Pirates. And I remember going down to some kind of a party the year. And everybody was so proud. It was like if they'd gotten an NFL franchise and <laughs> big parties and meet, meet the quarterback and, and meet the coach. They were just really, really excited. It lasted about two years. I think <laughs> they got together and said, you know, we're the Canadian football league. Um <laughs> And I think what we kind of put the kibosh on is one year, the team that won was from Baltimore. So he said, yeah. no, no, no more of this. And so, <laughs> so they, uh, well, I'm a little, I'm a little late to the Streetport party and I did not know that. And uh, I'm going to have to admit that right out. Okay. I'm over one. Not doing very good yet. You didn't miss much. So. And obviously when you think Streetport, you think pirates. So. Of oh yeah, of course. Yeah. First thought. All right. Well, that's all I got. <laughs> Here, let me oh. say uh, we talked a lot about music. Let me say a couple of things about, about your town. How are things going over there other than COVID? Man, you know, there's always, uh, my, my motto is onward and upward. And um, there's, there's always things to work on, but there's always things to be proud of. And so I'm kind of, you know, I'm always, I'm an eternal optimist. And um, th there's things that I see that I want to improve. And to me, those are just opportunities to to make my city, my home, a better place. Um, I remember, always, you know, it never ends. It never ends. I remember the days when gambling was a big issue, and people wanted to legalize gambling and have casino type gambling. And one thing you hear over and over again is that South Louisiana would always approve gambling because it's the Catholics, right? North Louisiana <laughs> never approved gambling because it's the Baptists. So you go to Lafayette, there's no casino. 
You go to Shreveport, how many y'all have there now in the river? Uh, <laughs> well, one Diamond Jack's closed. So I want to say five, one, two, three, four, five, at least five plus the racetrack, I think. <laughs> so so Shreveport became a gambling center. And uh, in Lafayette, we left yeah, the, the racetrack was out of town, but but it, it never embraced it never embraced gambling. So uh, you all have a little bit of an oil industry, but I know oil is struggling globally right now. Yeah, yeah. You know, so this is interesting that you, you dove off into this because I, I said I was not from Shreveport. I, I music brought music and movies brought me there 14 years ago, and uh, and I stayed and I loved it. But I, it, you, there's a bit of an identity crisis, you know, and 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 I've always thought the music would kind of help resolve that a little. But you know, you're 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 partially Texan, you know, all the streets downtown are, are people that were in the Alamo. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you're you're minutes from Arkansas, and uh, and so they've they've always kind of been looking for this identity, and then the casinos come along. And pretty universally, as I've traveled, that's what people say. They go, "Oh yeah, Shreveport, you gamble, yeah, you a casino." Um, so I don't, you know, I, I don't sway the way on that. But I just wish the music was as big a part of the identity as the casinos were. Now, your own music career, you play around town, and I know right now it's hard for people to have have concerts. But you have things on your on your Facebook. You've done some concerts that people can go ahead and look at. Yeah, yeah, you know, I. What one of the things I love about Louisiana in general, okay, north to south, east to west, top to bottom, is how the music is an intrinsic part of the culture. You know, whether you're down down south of I-10 playing the Cajun, um, or or in New Orleans doing jazz or blues, rock, whatever, it's like everywhere you go in Louisiana, music is just right in the middle of everything. And long story short, I had been in Nashville for a while and moved to Shreveport to kind of quote unquote, retire from music. But I discovered in Shreveport a really incredible music scene. And that kind of coincided with my exploration of the music history. You know, somebody say, man, have you ever looked at how many, not not just like rock star famous musicians came out of Shreveport, but just moderately famous musicians or music producers in Nashville, you know, or concert pianists like Van Cliburn. I mean, there's, there's this just litany, like a long, long list of musicians influential in the music industry that came right out of Shreveport Bossier. And so so as I was becoming more prominent in the performing realm, I was learning the music history. So it was this kind of journey I went on two things simultaneously. But I let me just tell you, you know, there's an old joke about a, a what do you call a piano player without a girlfriend? Homeless. Uh, you know, it was. There's a joke about musicians not being able to make a living as musicians, and I was very proud and simultaneously amazed that I made a career out of playing music in Shreveport, Bossier. And before COVID-19, I mean, my head was spinning. I played so much music, and so when the pandemic happened, me just like everybody else, we switched to these virtual performances, uh, which just isn't quite the same. So I'm I'm, I'm excited to. I guess maybe 2021 we'll uh, we'll get back to uh, doing what I love hopefully. Well, as soon as you do, I'm gonna drive up there and go see you. Okay, I want to hear your rendition of some of those uh, those Hank Williams songs. I just want to just kind of close, and this has nothing to do with anything 
we've talked about, but I was just thinking about historical things in, in, in Shreveport. And I just want to mention the um, what happened in Shreveport on September 11th, 2001. And do you know what happened? What the big thing yeah, was? Yeah, I, I do know what happened. And I have a not a funny story, but I have a story about it. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I didn't know. Well, on September 11th, 2001, I was in San Angelo, Texas. Okay. I wasn't anywhere near Shreveport. And I remember watching George W. Bush give his speech after the towers fell. He flies around for a while and he lands and he gives a speech at a podium. And yeah. at the time, I didn't care where the speech was from because me, yeah, like every other American, let me, what's that? Let me catch people up, okay? Because okay. when the word came out about the Twin Towers in New York, Bush was at some kind of a grade school in, in Florida. And so they need to whisk him away and they're not sure where to bring him to. So they go to Air Force One. Not, they don't think it's a good idea to go to Washington, which is where he wants to go. Secret Service says, no, we don't know what's happening. They might be bombers and all that. So ultimately, yeah. uh, to go to Barksdale Air, Air Base in Bossier City, where he could at uh -huh. least get fuel and food and have a press conference. So so the first place he went after getting word about 9-11 was to Bossier City. Okay, so take it from there. Yeah, so, so this very famous like two minute speech he gave where he talked about Amer freedom itself was attacked was at Barksdale in Bossier city. So there's a museum uh, at the air force base, um, uh, global power music, Barksdale global power museum or something like that. And of course, being an advocate for my city and my region, I go to the museum with my wife, Donna. And in the museum is the podium he was standing at when he gave that speech. And, you know, being a child of the 80s, and I lived through 9-11, and that podium is right in front of me, I was like, wow, this is pretty intense, you know, because I know the, the ramifications of that moment in history. And they tell this really incredible story that whatever room that podium was in at Barksdale, it got renovated. And whoever renovated the building didn't know the significance of the podium. And it ended up in a, in a pile of things to be sold or distributed elsewhere. And the podium ends up in a school, like a grade school in Arkansas. And then one day somebody comes through at the Air Force base and says, where's the podium? And they said, uh, I don't know. And they go and dig through the records. And they said, oh, it ended up at such and such school in Arkansas. And they sent people up there to fetch the podium and bring it back to Air Force, the Air Force base. So it came really close to being relegated to the you know, the forgotten relics of history in a school somewhere in Arkansas. I just thought that was a crazy story. Yeah, so there's, a, you know, Shreveport and Bossier City, music history aside, there's a lot of confluence of, of significant moments and people. And to me, you know, as an amateur historian and lover of history and uh, all things music, I'm always fascinated to discover these things about where I live because those give you the the understanding of, of the city, a, a deeper understanding. You know, there's a lot of bad things too. I'm not, it's not all rosy, but um, I, I'm a true believer that to, to really look to the future, you have to wrap your brain around the past. And luckily uh, for people, if they want to come up to Northwest Louisiana from South Louisiana or wherever, I think they'll be pleasantly surprised uh, at the depth and richness and really the never ending nature of our history. It just keeps unfolding. And look, I'll add this too, this caveat with the music history. I'm still uncovering stuff. 
I mean, you know, every every so often I'll find some nugget of information and I'll say, what? I didn't know that. And it kind of entices you to keep digging, you know. And so the, the, it's it's kind of exciting adventure for me. Every time I learn something about the music history, it just goes me on even more to keep looking. You know, it used to be in Louisiana that people had a hard time traveling north and south because there were just a lot of small highways and you had to switch from one to the other and you're going through towns and you, you got the sheriff's wanting to give you a ticket and everything. But now it's all it's all interstate. So you go from Shreveport to New Orleans, I-10 to I-49. Yeah, and look, I-49 might be the best maintained highway in all Louisiana. I mean, it's smooth as butter. <laughs> I love driving yeah. I-49. Only problem is they don't allow billboards. And after a while, when there's no billboards, you start missing them. So that's, that's my only thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, look, man, I went to college in West Texas. Yeah. Um, there's not a lot of trees out, out there. And so that, that's a big adjustment. When you move to Louisiana, <laughs> there's nothing but trees. But well, yeah, that's that's about all you'll see on I-49 all the way to Shreveport. Trees, 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 and more trees. This has been great. It's been a great conversation. Uh, we'll do this again. I don't know what we'll talk about, but we'll, we'll make up something. Oh, it, well. It, it, and let us know when you're performing live again, too, because uh, sure. we'll tell the people about it, too. And again, I urge everybody to go to his Facebook and see that uh, that spoof on Margaritaville, because it's really, really <laughs> So. I also, by the way, uh, here's another plug. Uh, my wife, Dawn, and I just launched a YouTube channel called Rolling with the Halls. Rolling with the Halls. And that Coronaville video is on that YouTube channel as well. Okay. So it's real easy to find. And uh, we're going to start doing some little travel segments around our favorite places. Um, we just started the channel, so there's only four or five videos on there. But we're going to do more. So mm -hmm. I encourage people to check that out. Okay. And we so, can't do this again. There's always more Shreveport music history to talk about. Always yeah. more. We just scratched the surface. You know, oh, hour. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Winston, thank you very much. It was great. Yeah, thank you. It was fun. We'll do it again. Thanks for listening to Louisiana Insider. Subscribe, like, and rate our show where you listen to your podcasts and follow us on social media at Louisiana Life Mag. Executive producer for Louisiana Insider is Kelly Massico in cooperation with Louisiana Life Magazine. For subscription information to Louisiana Life, call 504-828-1380. Our theme music was provided by Rich Collins. Hey, that's me. Join us again next week for more discoveries inside Louisiana. <laughs>